Amen. Well, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn me to the book of Hebrews. Close. It's Old Testament cousin Habakkuk. So go with me to Habakkuk. We may find ourselves dipping into Hebrews this morning. Would not be a surprise to anyone, I imagine. Almost every week we're going to find ourselves either in Hebrews or Ephesians, whether we need to or not. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, this morning uh, we do come back to where we tried to go last week. Um, We are going to come back and finish up chapter 2 of Habakkuk. Uh, last week we uh, we kind of stalled in verse five to uh, to really just see what was was going on there, and then this morning as we come to these woes of the Chaldeans, of uh, the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians that we'll kind of use uh, interchangeably uh, throughout as we finish Habakkuk. But if you are new with us, uh, for sake of very brief introduction, we are going through the book of Habakkuk, a minor prophet. Uh, who is talking to the Lord, who is bringing his questions to the Lord uh, about the evil that is going on around him and the evil that's found in Israel. And God says, at his first complaint, he says, I know this evil. I am uh, actually using the, the Babylonians to, to do my work and my will in a way that, um, uh, that you can't even imagine. And then Habakkuk come back, comes back and says, well, how can you, a holy God, be a part of such wicked people? And now God is replying to him in his uh, second response to Habakkuk's complaint in which he is clearly putting at the feet of the Babylonians their sinful deeds. And so this morning, uh, what we see in verses 6 through 20 is just that. We see kind of the sinful deeds of Babylon fleshed out. And so what we see and the, especially the last part of chapter 2 in Habakkuk is we see that God is fully recognizing and holding Babylon accountable for all their actions. Although in chapter 1, where it says uh, that God is using them, it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, For behold, I, God, is raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march to the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. That we'll see this morning, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Uh, they're even as well. All these things that we saw in chapter 1, we're going to see kind of refleshed out in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, where it says, I am doing this, I am using these Babylonians and their evil uh, ways, their evil nature, their evil actions, I am using them to bring judgment against sinners and against sin. Um, and he goes on there in verse 11 of chapter 1 to say, uh, they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their gods. They are clearly guilty. Um, and then we're going to come back now at this end of chapter 2 just to see exactly what's happening. And so kind of there's five woes that we're going to see starting in verse 6, 6 through verse 20. Five woes. We're going to kind of frame each of these the same way. There's a pattern, if you will. So if you're taking notes, maybe it'll help you. But with each woe, we're going to look at what that woe looked like to the Babylonians then, to what it looks like to us today, to those who would uh, ignore and reject God, and then ultimately what the gospel says about it and how Christ um, redeems these, this, this woe, and this judgment, this wrath, if you will. So simply put, we're going to look at the then, the today, and the gospel. So before we dive into chapter 2, verse 6, let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace 
for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for allowing us even to gather this morning. We thank you for the minor prophet um, that we know as Habakkuk. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel truths that we've seen so far and help us this morning, not just to stand in amazement at such atrocities committed by Babylon so many years ago, but Lord, even more, stand in amazement at Christ, who He is, who we are, and who we are in light of Him. So thank you, Lord, for your truth. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. Well, let's do this. Let us just jump into chapter, uh, chapter 2. We want to just read kind of sections, if you will, instead of this whole uh, 14 verses. So let's read the first woe. So in Habakkuk 2, verse 6 begins, Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and saying, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. So this first woe that we see beginning in verse 6, simply puts as woe to him who takes what is not his own. Woe to him who takes what is not his own. And we're, gonna, we're not going to spend much time in each of these woes because there are five of them. We're going to work our way through it. But what we see in the then uh, of this woe, of this, this condemnation, if you will, and it's important to note as you read these, this is not a, a spirit of, uh, of derision, if you will, that someone puts uh, better than I could, though woe carries the idea of a lament, the lament is for a judgment that is certain to occur rather than a wish that the evildoer be punished. And we can relate to that. Whenever we see evil in the world, there is probably a part of us that, re- that is glad to see when judgment comes upon them. But that is not the heart of Habakkuk chapter 2. It's not the heart of God. It should not be the heart of believer. We should not uh, rejoice and be glad whenever even sinners receive the wrath and judgment of God. But it is a lament for the judgment that is certain. And so this is what we see this morning as we kind of work through these woes. But woe to him who takes what is not his, who heaps up for himself what is not his own, what does not belong to him. And so condemnation of Babylon's sinful assertion of power is what is in view here. That they, as we've walked through these, first, uh, so these past several weeks, and we've gone through time and time again of kind of what Babylon is doing throughout the known world, they are just like locusts. They are devouring nations and tribes and peoples and, and towns, cities, villages, fortresses. They, wherever they go, they are bringing destruction, death and despair 
And so this woe is condemning Babylon for this sinful assertion of power over the known world. It's woe to you that you are taking things that are not your own. They are sweeping through other nations and they're taking what is not theirs, not by negotiation, not by purchasing it, not by uh, political ambitions, but by force, by sheer force and power. They are taking what is not theirs. And you see even kind of an echo of chapter 1 there when it says, for how long? How long will this go on? And as this is ultimately a, a, a woe from God to the, the Babylonians, we know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's given to this minor prophet Habakkuk, to this vision, to this oracle. And this is what God is saying. How long do you think this will go on? Woe to you as you heap up what is not yours, but for how long? And who loads himself up with pledges loads himself up with pledges it's a little uncertain to the exact meaning uh, of this phrase but it could reference how they conquered some cities and some peoples that they made uh, pledges intentions they may not have always gone in and just utterly destroyed them but they may have gone into some cities and into some strongholds and made pledges and promises that obviously they did not and would not and never intended to keep and so it's this, again, this, this picture of the nature of the Babylonians, that they are sweeping through the known world, taking what is not theirs, loading themselves up with pledges that they have no intention to keep. It says, will not your debtors suddenly arise? And so in every woe, except the last one, we're going to see uh, very clearly where Habakkuk points to, this is what you have done, now this is what is going to happen. It says, now will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered so many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. So the plunderer becomes the plunderid. <laughs> Don't fact check me on that. I think I said that correctly. But he who is taking will be taken from. So because you have plundered so many nations, the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So this is clear condemnation, this woe to those who have taken what is not theirs what is not theirs to take, what is not theirs to have. And so today we even see this is not just a condemnation of old. It's not just a woe from 2,600 years ago. But it's also a woe to those today that we would not acquire ill-gotten gains. And as believers, as we encounter this in the world around us, we see this, we take notice of it, and we know that this is not of the Lord. And it's not walking in integrity and righteousness to pursue ill-gotten gains. Believers, practically speaking, should avoid business practices that do not align with God's Word. We should be careful being involved with, with any pursuit of profit by sinful means. That like the Babylonians, you can't just go take what is not yours. Even today, in our business dealings, in our careers, in our families, in our pursuit of all that we do, we should never desire to take that which is not ours. And that would even... Say the encouragement is do not despair over those who do not take what is not theirs as we see this in the world around us for God will bring judgment and God will right the wrongs as we see in this woe to the Chaldeans. 
that he is clearly saying to them that you are doing this, you have done this, this is true of you, and now judgment will be brought upon you. So woe to those who take that which is not theirs. But the gospel truth of this, which I love to see, go with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. That Jesus, He does heap on for Himself what is not His. He takes what is not His. But what is this that He takes in 1 Peter chapter 2? 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he had no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As we look to the Lord, who is a just judge. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so the the picture of the gospel is that Jesus does heap on himself, which is not his, but that's sin. He takes on the sin of his people, as we see in 2 Corinthians, as we see in 1 Peter, as we see in 1 John, as we see throughout the whole gospel message. that That is the gospel, that he takes on our sin, that we would not be seen as sinners. He takes it all upon himself and he returns and in return he gives us what is not ours, his righteousness. And we call this the great exchange. So we see even in this judgment of the Babylonians with their sin and their sinful assertion of power, we even see the gospel message laden in this. But Christ ultimately takes on which is not his and gives us what we do not deserve. This exchange of his righteousness for our sinfulness. But woe to them who takes on what is not his. Secondly, woe to him who sinfully secures himself from harm. If you continue there in verse 9, it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And so what we see here in this second woe, we see the why of the first woe. So the first woe, the, the Babylonians are going throughout all the, the known world. They're sinfully, sinfully asserting their power. They're killing, destroying. They're, they're doing all the stuff that the Babylonians are doing to, to build their kingdom. And the why is found in verse 9, the second woe. That to him who gets evil gain for his house, for the purpose to set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. 
And so as we've seen in chapter 1, they are trusting in their own military might. They're trusting in their ability to conquer the known world so that they might not be conquered. It's the classic, uh, he who walks with the biggest stick, right? They're trying to be the, the most ferocious, the most feared, the greatest army, the greatest, the greatest military might so that they might be protected. But we're going to see that does not last. It says even in verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So we see this, even this, and and Habakkuk through the Holy Spirit just paints this vivid picture throughout all of the small book here. And this vivid picture that he paints here, even if those that you've conquered have no voice anymore. Even upon their death and destruction, if nothing else, the building itself will cry out. That God will vindicate His people. That God will be a just judge. So woe to Him. Woe to Him who sinfully secures Himself from harm. Their iniquity will not go unnoticed. The walls would cry out. The beams would speak God will deliver justice to this evil empire. And the woe is the same to us today and to all of those who do not look unto the Lord. Woe to them who try to save themselves. Woe to them who try to secure themselves from harm. Because we know as believers, no amount of protection, safety, or security can ensure you another moment outside of the will of God. A person's greatest need is not to be safe, but to be saved. I think that flies in the face of a lot of worldly wisdom. That we think that our greatest need is to be safe and secure. But it's not. It's to be saved. And secure, secured in the righteousness of Christ, secured in the ability of Jesus. So woe to them who try to save themselves. Woe to them who look to their own selves for their ability to be secure. For we know there is no security outside of Christ. And so the gospel message there is to gain your life, you must lay down your life. To gain your life, to gain safety and security, you must lay down your life and die. We surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We die to ourselves. We become a new person with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the heart of the gospel. That Whenever we release control, whenever we release uh, our own perceived sovereignty in our life, whenever we release our desire to live our life, and we lay our life down, Whenever we let go of wanting to live and we die to ourselves, then we find life in Christ. To gain your life, you must lay down your life. So, woe to him who takes what is not his own. Woe to him who sinfully secures himself from harm. And this third woe begins there in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood who founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
So this third woe is woe to him who builds a kingdom on iniquity and blood. So the Babylonians, clearly, as we've seen, they will not stop at a town or a city. They're not going to stop at just uh, taking over a territory or a province. They are building for themselves a kingdom. They're building for themselves a kingdom that they think will last forever. They will have no end. But God's decree was woe to them for seeking their own kingdom, seeking their kingdom that is found on blood and iniquity. It would not last. If you were to travel today over to that part of the world and you were to go to where the site of Babylon is believed to be, you will not find Babylon. You will not find the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, or the Chaldeans. You will find a desolate wasteland. You will find empty caves and abandoned what remains of those buildings and of their civilization. You will find wild animals inhabiting that space. For their kingdom would not last. No kingdom of man lasts, especially that which is built on blood and iniquity. This is not just Babylon. We've seen it throughout human history. And no kingdom will last that is built with blood or is founded on iniquity. So woe to those today who would labor their whole lives for their own kingdom. And this is something, again, that we see regularly in our culture. We see regularly even in the church, and we guard our hearts from it. It's not about our kingdom. It's not about uh, our wills, our desires, our plan. So woe to those today who would labor in vain their whole lives to build their own kingdom because your kingdom will not last. Without Christ, all things are vanity. Without Christ, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's short-lived at best. As we look to the gospel, there's the promise. You see there in verse 14, for the earth will be filled. doesn't say may be filled. doesn't say possibly filled. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. One simple verse, but I think it's worth turning to. Go with me real quick to Matthew chapter 24. Verse that I was reminded of recently and think about often. But Matthew 24, 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom, that's the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Think on that for a moment. God's word says, it declares that the gospel, the kingdom of God will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. All nations. And then the end will come. I was joking with, I I said joking, I, I think I admitted I was 50 to 60% joke on the day with, uh, with our guys. We're talking in a meeting about missions and 
uh, just the call to, to take the gospel throughout all the world, it'd be surely someone by now has a national bingo, right? Like has a big board somewhere with all the nations. And as soon as that last one receives the word of God and the, the, the gospel goes forth to that people group, then Jesus comes back. Can we all just take a name, right? And go, and go do it. So Maranatha, so the Lord returns. There's a promise of Scripture, not just in Matthew 24, but through so many places in the New Testament that, that, the, that the Word of God, the good news of the gospel of Christ would go forth to all nations. So we must be actively engaged in that mission because we're not building our kingdom. We're not even building the kingdom of North Hills. There is no kingdom of North Hills. There is no kingdom of John McCartney. There is no kingdom of fill in the blank outside the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is what we together as the people of God should be concerned with and consumed with is the kingdom of God. We build His kingdom. And that's not just in Ouagadougou, Africa. It's been a while since I said that one. Isn't it? But it's even in, our, in West Monroe and Monroe and Calhoun and Downsville in our places of influence, that we are to be about the kingdom of God. But woe to him who builds a kingdom on iniquity and blood. But let us be a people who desire to build the kingdom of God. Fourthly, verse 15 there, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. And like so much of Habakkuk, this is not a figurative passage here. He's not talking specifically to those who make their neighbors drink. But it is a, a picture here of, of how they have again brought judgment. They brought destruction, death, and violence upon the neighbors, their neighboring nations. The idea of making your neighbor get drunk is figurative for how the Babylonians have treated those they have captured. The nations were drunk in the sense that they were powerless, oppressed, and not themselves. They were hopeless. Gazing upon their nakedness that we see in verse 15 there is a reference to the shame the losing nations would experience. This is a common practice in the ancient Near East. Whenever they would um, capture enemies, they would parade out many of their leaders naked. So they would be shamed. The Babylonians didn't just defeat their enemies, they humiliated their enemies. It wasn't enough just to win and be victorious in battle, but they had to bring shame and humiliation to all of those that they conquered. And God says, woe, woe to you who destroys your neighbor in this way. Woe to you who makes his neighbor drink. Woe to you who pours out your wrath and makes them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. 
And the same is true today. Woe to to those today who desire to humiliate others. To those filled with pride, determined to bring shame. This is not of the Lord. This is not of righteousness. This is of iniquity and sinfulness. To bring humiliation on top of death and destruction. This is not the way the Lord brings His wrath. Go again to Hebrews. Told you we'd end up there. Hebrews chapter 2, as we think about shame, as we think about humiliation, as we think about the gospel. Let's read the first couple of verses there of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. We love this passage. Back when we walked through it in Hebrews, it's probably my favorite verses in Hebrews. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's in our very nature to to cringe whenever we see someone be shamed, when we see someone humiliated. And we see as as God brings this woe, as He charges this against the Babylonians, we we, we understand that. We understand the, the sinfulness of humiliation. We see that in a culture around us. But how much more then do we look at Christ who took on the shame, the humiliation of the cross and all that was tied in with that. For us, for our sake, Jesus took on our shame and now we are free from shame. We are free from guilt. We are free from that weight of humiliation. Think on that for a moment. Dwell on that. Remember that this morning as we look to Christ and what He has done. Yes, we still feel the weight of our sin. We have a desire to put that sin to death. But by the grace of God, by the grace and the work of Jesus Christ, we no longer carry the guilt and the shame of our sin. For Christ has dealt with it. Christ took on that shame that we would not have to. So woe to him who shames his neighbor. The number five, the last one, he actually changes his format a little bit. It doesn't start with the woe. Some would say it was to bring emphasis to it was the final of the five woes. But it begins in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. If you read that the way that I read it, I believe that Habakkuk 
had to kind of mean it was just taking a big jab at the Babylonians, right? Taking a jab at all of those who would make an idol out of that which was lifeless. Idol worship was a significant part of the Babylonian culture. And Habakkuk here is just taking a shot at the silliness of worshiping that which is lifeless made by human hands. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Who, who trusts in this? Does it make any sense to take a piece of wood and carve it and say, this is our God, we're going to trust this? Does it make any sense to take metal and to shape in the image that you want and say that we're going to worship this? We're going to place our hope in this? It seems silly. It should seem silly to us, but the Babylonians were not alone. Worship of lifeless idols and artifacts are present and prevalent throughout the whole Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're present throughout human history and even continue today. And although it may not seem like today that we practice this same kind of idol worship and that we make things out of our hands and worship it, it is true. Spurgeon said it well that the human heart is an idol factory. We make idols out of so many things. We place our hope in so many things because apart from Christ, we are hopeless. And no, we may not see people erecting totem poles and doing things that we see in the Old Testament and that we can see in human history, but you don't have to look far to see people trust in that which is lifeless and that which has no hope and that which is not trustworthy. In what or whom do we trust? Currency in our own country says in God we trust. But is that true? Just because we place it on our money, does that mean that we trust the Lord? Are we trusting in that money itself? Are we trusting in what it brings? Are we trusting in that security? The dollar, the stock market, cryptocurrency today, 401ks, the list could go on of the things that we place our hope and our trust in that we look to, to bring us safety and security. But the gospel says this, that the only one that we should place our trust in or can't even place our trust in is Christ. We place our trust, our hope, our very being in the hands of the Lord. True biblical faith places one's unwavering hope, trust, and confidence in the Lord. We don't look to money. We don't look to security. We don't look to retirement plans. We don't look to contingency plans. We don't look to our government. We don't look to our careers. We look to Christ. Simply put, Christ, that's it. I hear it often from guys in the field that I work. If I got run out of, my, out of my job, or if I lost my job, I'd be okay. I'll be on my feet tomorrow. I'll find work to do. They trust in their own hands, in their own ability. But even in our own selves, we cannot trust. True biblical faith places one's unwavering hope, trust, and confidence in solely the Lord. And we're going to need 
someone to place our trust because Jesus himself promises. He says, you will have troubles in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Not your bank account, not your plan, not your bunker in your backyard, not your fill in the blank. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. We've gone to Romans 8, 28 almost every week. that Paul says to the Holy Spirit that all things work together for the good for God's people. Place your trust in Christ and He will never disappoint. He is not a lifeless piece of wood. He is not a metal image, a teacher of lies. There, there are no other gods. There is only one God. Everything else is a hopeless, lifeless, false image. So place your trust in Christ. He will never disappoint and you continue there to verse 20 but the lord is in is in his holy temple let all of the earth keep silence before him it is clear that god has cast judgment against the babylonians it become even more clear in a few decades from whenever habakkuk is written as god pours out this judgment as all these woes become true and they, uh, the people of Israel experience those and they, they can recall what God has said and, and, and what happens to those who, who do not trust in Him. But God sits in His holy temple. Let's go back to Psalm 11 real quick, the one we read earlier this morning. short psalm seven verses says in the lord i take refuge how can you say to my soul flee like a bird to your mountain for behold the wicked bend the bow they have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright at heart if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do the lord is in his holy temple The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face so this is the lord and he doesn't love us because of our righteous deeds because you nor i have done anything in our life that is righteous enough to satisfy the lord that anything in our life apart from christ that seems good and seems righteous and seems upright is but filthy rags scripture says And so he loves those who have the righteousness of Christ. And I hope you don't get tired of hearing it because it's the same message you're going to hear every single week. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope. It is the righteousness that we we receive from Christ in this great exchange that the Lord looks down upon and is pleased in. God is a just judge. He will always judge sinners and He'll always judge the righteous based on their righteousness. 
And so do you want to stand before God in your righteousness or the righteousness of Christ? And as we think about these Babylonians and we think about the, the evil that we see here, and I had a, a great conversation at, at work this week about just looking at, the, at, at sin in the world and just someone gave a, just a very clear example of just atrocious sin. So how, how can God be gracious with someone like that? So we are that person. We are the Chaldeans. We are the Babylonians here. Apart from Christ, we have the same capacity in us. But it's not about what they did. It's about who they did it against. It's about the, the righteousness and holiness of God that they rejected and they sinned against. So let us not get caught up in the comparison of our actions and of our sins. But let us look and know that it is who we sin against that makes us unrighteous. God is a just judge. He will judge sinners and he will vindicate his people. Apart from the righteousness found in Christ, no one is good. And so let us thank the Lord that as we look at the Babylonians, we look at these woes, that we do not have to stand in judgment of these woes, but that we can stand and be blessed because who we are in, and that is Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I would thank you for this morning. Thank you for a chance to open your word and to look to its truth. Lord, our heart does and should break for the sinfulness that we see around us. God, I pray this morning for those who may be listening, those who may be here, those who may can hear this message throughout this week from conversations we would have, that you would, by your grace, draw sinners to salvation. And we realize that our greatest need is not to be safe, but to be saved. May we look to you and trust you for that. And for the so many in this room and those who are listening who have done that, Father, that we look to Christ and we trust in him and that we come to the table in a moment we remember his broken body and remember his poured out blood. That we be moved and motivated to share that good news with those around us. And we'd be encouraged this morning that we do not have to carry the guilt and the weight of our sin because you have taken that all. As we sing this morning, as we come to the communion table, as we give, as we leave this place, Lord, may we, may we look to you and trust you in every aspect of our life. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.